take our Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Last week we began our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We talked a little bit of background and then we just read through the whole sermon. And so this week we're going to dive into it a little bit more. We're going to try. I won't be here next week, so we need to accomplish getting through the first 12 verses. A couple of things about the Sermon on the Mount that we need to be reminded of and just touch base on before we dive into the text. Uh, first, this is, this is kingdom talk, right? This is citizens of the kingdom. And so as we would work through the Beatitudes, there's this familiarity with the Beatitudes. We kind of love them. I will talk about that near the end. Like, like a lot of times it's something we go to for comfort. And yet throughout all of this, throughout the whole sermon, Jesus is talking about those who are citizens of this kingdom, right? So this is what it looks like to be a citizen. And so uh, don't lose sight of that. Like, like if we walking through, not just this morning, but throughout, like, like over and over again, it's like, hey, this is not a part of my life, then what Jesus is saying is you're not a citizen of the kingdom. Right? His words, not mine. Okay, second thing. Uh, I, I, this was probably caught more than taught, but I felt like I never heard the Sermon on the Mount as a series. I never heard it read through all in one sitting. Like, like in my mind, the Sermon on the Mount was a bunch of like little snippets that get taken out of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we have the Beatitudes that we covered this morning, and then you'll do Salt and Light, and they have nothing connected to each other other than they're found in the same chapter. And that was kind of my understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. And as I've walked through this and study of this, I'm going to steal some of Daniel's thunder next week. Uh, but salt and light is the very next thing. Like, we're going to end chapter 12. Verse 13 is going to be be salt, and it's totally connected. Like, like, if you are living out the Beatitudes, then guess what? Verse 13, you are salt. Verse 14, you are light. And so this isn't like, hey, here's some good things, and let's take a break, and we'll cover these. Like, no, you can't be salt and light if you aren't doing the Beatitudes. Right? So we're going to go over the Beatitudes, and we're going to actually see ourselves coming back to them over and over and over again. Like, like what we covered this morning will be covered, uh, touched on again, all the way to the end of chapter 7. Okay? Um, so with that being said, let's read the text, and then i got one more thing I want to cover before we actually dive in. But let's read our text for this morning. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, before we dive in, I just want to talk about one word. It's probably an easy word to pick up on. It's this word, blessed. Right, I use the New American Standard. New American Standard has it blessed. If you use a different translation, you might see the word happy. You might see some word like delight. Uh, it's kind of one of those Greek words that we don't have a great English word to compare it to at times. I'm going to stick with the word blessed, uh, but let's just talk about that uh, before we dive in. Right? Like we, we being Western America, church, whatever you want to call us, uh, we want to define blessed how we see fit. Right, so, so we want to read verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a private island in the Bahamas. Like, we want to say, blessed are those who do this so that your kids won't walk away from God. Blessed are those who do this and you'll never get cancer. And so often we want to read into the text what we think would be a good blessing, and yet we cannot do that. Right, the text tells us, Jesus tells us in every one of these instances, he tells us what the blessing is. 
Like, you're going to be blessed for this, and here's what it is. And he's going to tell you. Like, this is the blessing. And so for us, we're so temporal and short-sighted that we make the blessing something that's here, that we can see, that we can touch, that we can feel. Like, like that's what we want. And yet Jesus is offering, offering us something far better. Okay? As I study this, I, I didn't see this connection. I don't know if we were supposed to make this connection. But in my mind, here's a connection that just kind of popped right in my head. I'm, I'm seeing the word blessed over and over again. And I just, I just went back to Psalm 1. And you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read parts of it. Psalm 1 starts with how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sitters, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Okay, let's just pause there for a second. Who's getting this blessing? Who's going to be blessed in Psalm 1? It's someone who says, I'm not going to live like the world. I'm not going to give into the, the, the life the world would promise and want and all those things. In verse 2, but he's going to delight in the law of the Lord. So, so, so the psalmist is saying, here's blessing to those who would live for God and not live for the world. Now again, what is that blessing? The psalmist tells us. He says, he, this person who delights in the law of God, who doesn't participate in the world, he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. He will yield fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither, and whatsoever he does, he prospers. And the psalm ends by saying, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, so what's the blessing? The blessing is that you will have spiritual fruit in your life. You'll be like a tree planted by a river of water. You will always have the energy, uh, the power of God, if you will, in your life. You won't wither. You won't fall away. You will spiritually prosper, not just now, but for all eternity. God knows your steps. He knows the direction you're going. He directs your steps, but the way of the wicked, they will perish. Like, so here's the blessing. You're, you live for God. Uh, you, you delight in his law, all these things. And the blessing is that you, God knows your steps. He directs your way. He gives you the power and the grace to live out his life, the life that he's called you to live. Okay? So, so I don't know if, if someone listening to, to the Sermon on the Mount would be like, hey, this sounds like Psalm 1. But as I studied, I just thought, man, this is so similar, even in the way that it would define what this blessing is. Okay? So with just kind of these things in mind, let's jump into the text. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay? We just pause for a second. In America, the word poor, I don't know if it ever really has a good connotation. Like, you're poor financially, we're not really proud of that. Uh, you're poor in health, yeah, probably not really good. Right? Like I, there's probably not an instance where we would say, hey, blessed, happy, whatever word you kind of want to go with there, like, and, and poor fit hand in hand in, in our culture. Right? It's more like, ooh, poor, we don't want that. And yet Jesus is going to say, no, blessed are the poor in spirit. So the question is then, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Okay, so, so to be born in spirit is this, is this idea that we are spiritually bankrupt. Like we have nothing on our own. Like there's no righteousness found in me. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is nothing. Right? I'm spiritually zero. I'm in debt, actually. I'm bankrupt. I have no good inside of me. Okay, so if you, if you think about this, though, poor in spirit then means what? It means every single person on this planet, apart from the person who's speaking this message in, in Matthew 5, is poor in spirit. And so, so is everybody then blessed? No, I don't think so. I think what he's saying here is, blessed are those who recognize that they are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize that they have no righteousness in and of themselves. Throughout this message, we're going to see over and over again that Jesus is not just saying, here's what it looks like to be a citizen in this kingdom, but he's saying this is what it looks like to be in the citizen of a self-righteous kingdom. And you can just imagine, like, like he's going right to the heart of self-righteousness. I don't, I don't have a verse for this. We go to Romans 1 and other places if you want to argue. Uh, but I personally feel like God reveals himself to every single person in some capacity where they would recognize that this life is not how it's supposed to be. 
right? Like, like you can hear it in celebrities and sometimes the statements they make, you can hear it in a lot of different people that somewhere out of their mouth is like, this is not how things are supposed to go. Like, like they just, they're a millionaire, they have all this stuff, and yet they're broken. And so I feel like God reveals himself somehow to, to most people, everybody, however you want to say this, and, and yet those who would recognize it and accept it are the ones who are blessed. The self-righteous, man, we can get real good at blaming people. Sure, I'm, I might be broken, but you don't know who my parents are. I might be broken, but you don't know who I married. I might be broken, but you don't know what my kids are like. I might be broken, but you don't understand what it's like to work at this job. I might be broken, but you don't understand the financial situation I've been in for the last 10 years. Like, I might be broken, but, and all of a sudden, we, we go from, hey, here, I'm broken. Like, yes, God, I have no righteousness of my own. To all of a sudden, it's someone else's fault. Or we can, we can rack up some good things we've done. Sure, I might be broken, but man, I helped the old lady cross the street. I might be broken, but I shared the gospel with somebody. I might be broken, but look at what I've done. And somehow my, my doing is going to make up for my brokenness, for my lack of righteousness. And Jesus is saying here, no, those who would recognize and embrace the fact that you are poor in spirit, you have no righteousness of your own. He says, you are the ones who are blessed. And what is that blessing? It's the second half of verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, like, you can have, you can have your self-righteousness. You can have all the things that you think make you good and wonderful and, 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 and uh, approval and all the stuff in the world. You can have that, or you can have the kingdom of heaven. Like, take your pick. You want the here and now? You want the approval of men? You want to look good? The, the pharisaical type of mentality in, in the New Testament? You want that, or do you want heaven? And not just heaven. Like, you're going to be a part of the kingdom. Like, like we're going to see uh, throughout this. It's not just it's not that we're citizens. Like, we're children. Like, like what, do you, what are we going for? Because you can't have both. Right? We can't be uh, somewhat broken over sin, but not really, and, and be a part of the kingdom. Like, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's either you're broken and you recognize you're poor in spirit, or you're not. Right? Second one, build on the first one. So, verse, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Again, this is not, we don't think of this, right? Someone's mourning, someone's weeping. We don't think, man, they're, what, what a blessing that is. Right? That's, not, that's not our context. And yet Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn. So the question is, what are they mourning? Like, are they mourning the loss of a pet? Are they mourning the fact that they bought Bitcoin when it was $60,000 and now it's not? Like, what are they mourning? Like, like, what are they going through right now? Well, they're mourning, verse 3. Like, they have recognized that they are spiritually bankrupt and poor and destitute. And they're broken and they're mourning it. God, I don't, I don't want this anymore. I don't, I don't want my sin anymore. I don't, I don't want my self-righteousness. I don't, I don't want any of this. Like, I can't save myself. I can't do anything good. And I'm mourning over the fact that I'm a sinner who rebelled against my creator. Like, like I don't want this. And Jesus says to those who mourn over their sin, over their brokenness, that they shall be comforted. This is borderline a waste of time, but just for fun. Um, I googled ways to be comforted. I don't know if that was a good idea or not. I clicked on the first link. There was a blog post or whatever it was. 30 ways for you to be comforted. I'm not going to read all 30. That would be a real waste of time. I'm just going to walk through. Like Here's worldly wisdom, right? How to be comforted. Not kidding. Not making any of these things up. One, stretch. Touch your toes. Like Literally sit on the floor and stretch. Two, meditate. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Just saying meditate. Third one, not necessarily in any order, take a hot shower. Right, so, so the struggles of the world, depression, anxiety, all these things that we're going to struggle with in our, our lifetime, like, oh, hot shower, that's going to fix it. A brisk walk in nature. I feel like they're not from Florida. Um, <laughs> sit under a blanket while wearing socks. Not kidding. Like, this is 
to comfort, right? Phone apps, which I think are the exact opposite of comforting most of the time. This, this one, some of you, is man, this, is, this will hit home for you. For me, it made me laugh even more. Pets. Like, I'm going to find comfort in the fact that this thing just destroyed my couch. Like, like that's where I can find comfort. But this, they take it a step further. I'm not making this up. If you don't have a pet, they suggest FaceTiming with someone else's pet. I was like, are you? Anyway, I'm not going to talk about it. Um, two more. Dress up. If you normally don't wear a suit, put on a suit. I was like, yeah, that's comfort right there. Uh, put on a fresh pair of pajamas. Right? So, so I just, and again, like this person, I don't, I don't know anything about their story. Literally, the first thing I clicked on, I didn't click on anything else. How to find comfort in this world. Every single one of these things, whether they work or not, is temporal and short-sighted. Right? Like fresh pair of pajamas only last so long. And they're no longer fresh. Right? A hot shower can bring comfort for what? Some of you are like maybe pushing an hour. Like, but how far, how long can I last? Right? So here's Jesus saying, hey, you want comfort in this world? You want to be comforted? And, and the stress and the anxiety and everything that we're going to face in this world. Like you want comfort. How are you going to find it? You're going to find it by mourning. You're going to find it by, by mourning over your brokenness. You're mourning over your sin. Like, like I don't want this anymore. I want, I want something better for me than, than my own self-righteousness, my own ability to really do nothing. And so just the context of the New Testament, how are we comforted by Jesus? We're comforted by his death, uh, his life, death, and resurrection. Like, I am broken, and I am poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, but because of Jesus Christ, I am now spiritually a millionaire. Like, I'm a child of the king. Like, he took my unrighteousness and he gave me his righteousness. So I'm no longer in Christ, poor in spirit, but I have been rescued. I have been saved. I've been given his righteousness on, uh, through his death and resurrection. So, so this isn't just some, some temporal so, sort of comfort. Like, this is comfort for here and now and for the rest of eternity. Like, like Jesus has saved me from my brokenness. And so, sure, there's stresses and there's anxieties and there's things in our life where we would seek comfort and a bowl of ice cream seems to go a real long way. And yet, Jesus is saying, no, true comfort, it comes by being a citizen of this kingdom. It comes by being a child of God. Verse 5. We're going to see all of these kind of build on each other. I'm not necessarily going to point out the building uh, blocks per se every time. But verse 5 says, blessed are the gentle. Uh, you might have uh, another word there, the other word most likely being meek. Again, it's one of those Greek words that we don't know what to do with in English too well. Um, meek, let's talk about meek. Meek's probably better than gentle. Uh, meek is, we would often say, strength under control. You could use the word self-control. But we can be self-controlled and not be part of the kingdom, right? We understand that. Like there's plenty of people in this world that can wake up at 3 in the morning and work out for 20 hours a day and have big muscles and never eat sugar. And like we would say they're self-controlled. Like they, they say no to the flesh so that they, they can be in shape. Or they say no to certain things so they can have more money. They say like there's self-control at work, right? So, so it can't just be that this is somehow self-control. It's got to be more than that. And, and so what does it look like? Well, according to the Greek uh, lexicon I look it up in, it just says that this idea of gentle, this idea of meekness is submission. So self-control for the submission of, of putting ourselves under God's will. Like, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to control myself. I'm not going to do everything the world promises me to do. I'm not going to go out and, and, and live it up per se. Like I'm going to control myself so that I would be under the will of God. Right? Like that's the, the idea from the, from the Greek word. Submission to God's will. So again, if you just stop and think about it, like I told you I wasn't going to do this on every word and I probably will. Uh, but poor in spirit, like I am spiritually bankrupt and yet I'm mourning over that and there's one who has come and who's rescued me. And so what am I going to do with this? As I'm not going to live for me, I'm going to live for him. 
right? Is this not this strength under control, my, my power under control, putting it under the will of God? And what does Jesus say? He says, when you do this, you shall inherit the earth. Many commentators would point us to Psalm 37. We'll, it'll be on the screen. Uh, Psalm 37 says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Get a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. That word humble there in Hebrew means poor and meek. So what is the promise here? All the way back in Psalm 37, like, like we're going to find out walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying these things, like, like they, end, of the, end of the sermon, right? They said, man, this guy speaks with one who has authority and not like our scribes. But what we often see is he's going back to the Old Testament passages. And he's building on them and, and, and maybe uh, applying them in a way that we haven't heard or they haven't heard. Right, but, but again, here, the humble will inherit the land, right? What do we see in, in, in Matthew 5? The gentle, this meek, the self-controlled, shall inherit the earth. In the Old Testament, they were looking for a land, right? They had a promised land, and they were looking for it uh, from, from Egypt. Like, out of Egypt, they're looking for a promised land. They go into captivity. What are they looking for? They're looking to come back into the promised land. Right? We, in the New Testament, there was a promised land, per se, but it's not a specific place as much as it is as, as it is a specific time. Like, we are longing for the day when Jesus will come back and rule and reign for all eternity. Like, he's going to set up his kingdom here on earth, and we're going to live with, with no sin and no politics and none of this other stuff that gets in the way and the corruption and, and all these things. Like, we're going to have a perfect king who's going to rule this earth perfectly. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying it's okay to submit to the will of God now. It's okay not to live it up now. Why? Because it's going to be far greater for you in the future. You will get the land. You will get earth. And not just this earth, but a new earth ruled by a better king. So again, why would we ever want to live for us now? Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a lot of talk of of what this righteousness is. I think it's fair to say, I'm not going to necessarily talk too much about it this direction, but I think it's fair to say that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness in our world. Like, like, hot topic in recent years has been racism. Like, we would be against racism. Like, we want to fight for things that are right and good and, and righteous. And while we would, would say that's probably true, and, and maybe I think there's also another way we can take this. I think this is your own personal righteousness. I have none. We understand that we're all poor in spirit, verse 3, okay? Duly noted. But what do I want more of? I want more of Jesus. I want more of him. I want more of his righteousness. I want to look more like him. I want my life to be filled up with him. I want more and more righteousness, not as in justification, but in progressive sanctification. Like, I don't want more of this world. I'm broken. I've mourned that life. I don't want that life anymore. I want more of Jesus. And so what are my eyes on? My eyes are on him. Jesus, I want to be filled with you. Jesus, I hunger and I thirst for you and for your righteousness and for your word. We're, we're all sinners, right? We know that. All of us in here in this room right now are probably struggling with something that no one even knows about. Okay? Duly noted. But if, but if we can go through our Christian life 
and never say we've hungered and thirsted for righteousness, for Jesus' righteousness, to grow in our sanctification. Like, if we've never wanted that, we've never spent time in the Word of God and said, God, I just, I just wish I could spend more time in your Word this morning. Like, we've never prayed and just, God, thank you, thank you for this time of prayer. I wish I could spend more time in prayer. Like, if we've never been there, then I wonder if we're really citizens of the kingdom. Now, I understand. We go through seasons, right? There's seasons where it's like, man, it's hard to get in the Word of God. Man, it's hard to find time to pray. I get it. But if we've never been here, We've never been to a point where it's like, God, I just can't have enough of you. Like I would hunger and thirst for you and for your righteousness and for my life to be changed by you. Then, then, then I'm wondering for citizens. What does he say about those who would hunger and thirst for righteousness? He says, they shall be satisfied. Like, like the, the word satisfied is just filled up to the top, completely full. Right? And again, this isn't some sort of temporary satisfaction. Like all of these things, all of these blessings that we receive from God for living this way are all given to us by God himself. So this isn't some sort of temporary satisfaction. This is an eternal satisfaction. Like this satisfaction well, is good for here and now, but it's also good for all eternity. Like we can be satisfied in Christ. And not only can we be satisfied in Christ, we can only be satisfied in Christ. Nothing else this world offers will satisfy only him. And so what do we do is we pursue him and we hunger after him and we thirst after him and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. That thing that pulled my heart so long ago that I just had to have doesn't seem so valuable anymore. The, the friends, the attention, the popularity, the YouTube subscribers, like whatever we're angst, whatever, whatever desires are, all of a sudden we focus on Jesus and they slowly go away. Jesus becomes more and more valuable that these things of the world become less and less valuable, and we find our satisfaction in him. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Again, if you just think through, let's define mercy real quick. The word mercy is, is pity for the miserable. Okay, if we, if we just walk through this real quick, we recognize we're poor in spirit, we've, we're broken, we've mourned over that, we've been comforted by the fact that Jesus has died and rescued us. Now we want to look more and more like him. So what does that mean? It means when we come into contact with other broken people, that we can show them mercy. Right? Like we can come and conquer somebody and be like, look, I understand you're broken because I'm broken. I understand you're poor in spirit because I'm poor in spirit. I understand you need somebody else's righteousness because I need somebody else's righteousness. I understand that you would hunger and thirst for righteousness because you are, are slowly growing in this progressive sanctification because that's what I'm doing. And so I can be merciful to you. Why? Because I've experienced God's mercy. We think of a self-righteous person. There's no mercy. How dare you say that about me? How dare you do such a dumb thing? Like, like do, you even know, do you even know who I am to, to say such a thing to me? Like, do you even know what's going on? Like, do you even have a brain? And all of a sudden, the self-righteous person's like, there is no mercy. Like, you should earn this because that's what I did. And yet Jesus says, no, no, no. And the citizens of the kingdom, we're, we're, we're not judging. We're merciful. What does he say to those who are merciful? He says, you will receive mercy. This is an interesting topic, interesting statement. Because, because we've already received mercy, have we not? Like we're showing mercy because God's been merciful with us. And so now there's this question of what does it mean to receive mercy? Like, like can we somehow receive even more mercy? I don't totally know the answer, but we'll get to this topic in a little bit. Matthew 7, talking about prayer. Jesus would say this, uh, that, that God will not forgive your transgressions if you do not forgive others their transgressions. And so I just kind of wonder, if we don't show mercy to others, does God stop showing mercy to us? 
Not justification, not that you would lose your salvation or anything like that, but is God merciful and do we experience more of his mercy when we are pouring out mercy on others? I mean, that's, that, that's I think that's what the text says. Right? Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart, we understand from verse 3, this ain't us. Right? Like, blessed are the pure in heart, but we're not pure. We're broken and rebellious and full of sin. So then what does it mean then to be pure in heart? I'm going to share a quote and then we'll kind of dive off this quote. Uh, Daniel Aiken would say this. Being pure in heart involves a passionate pursuit of righteousness and obedience. A longing for God's presence, a pursuit of God's purity, a delight in God's pleasure. These are the things that cultivate and characterize a pure heart. Okay, let's just just pause for a moment. Uh, I like the idea here of cultivate. Um, I I think we can use another word for characterize, so I'm not trying to make his statement better. I obviously like it because I'm using it. But here's this passion, pursuit of righteousness and obedience. Sounds like hunger and thirsting for righteousness, right? A longing for God's presence in my life. A pursuit of his purity, not some sort of self-righteousness, and a delight in God's pleasure. Okay, this is, this is what I think. Uh, we could boil it down. This is a focusing on God and nothing else. Let's, let's just use a biblical term for it. It's, it's not idolatry. Right? Like how often do we break the first commandment and we look for something else in this world to be a better God than God himself? And so what is he saying? I think what Daniel Aiken's saying, I think what Jesus is saying about pure in heart is this is a pure heart, like, focusing in on God. Like, it's not diluted, it's not watered down, it's not stained by sin and idolatry and worship of other things. This is a heart that's for God and for God alone. Right? And so, so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, blessed are you that would pursue after God, who would pursue this pure heart, who would, who would pursue uh, this, this worship of God and God alone. And he says, what is the blessing for you? He says, the blessing is that you shall see God. I I think a couple of thoughts. One, I think you see God at work in your life today. Like right now, like like you could say, look at what God has done. He led me to this person. I had this conversation. Like God has blessed me. He's taken care of this need. Like all of a sudden, I've just seen God working in my life like I've never had before. Right? And so, so for some of us, like, like we saw God work in a season of our life, maybe four, five, six, seven, 10, 12, 20 years ago, whatever it's been. But like we've seen it happen in our life, but presently it's not. And so my question would be, are we pursuing God alone? Or are we allowed some sort of idolatrous nature to come into our heart? Right? Is, are we worshiping God and, and him alone? Or are we worshiping something else? But not only do we see God at work in our life today, I think literally we will see God like face to face. We who were once poor in spirit, we who were broken, who had no righteousness of our own, who have no, no right to stand before God as a child, will one day see him face to face. Like, oh, how we should long for that day. Like, like we've said this before, I'll say it again, uh, there's about to be another member of gospel community in the next couple weeks, right, because of a birth. Uh, it would be better, I don't know if Joel and Grace will agree with the statement right now, but it would be better for Jesus to come today than to wait for that baby to be born. Like, like so often it's like some tragedy happens and some war breaks out and we say, oh, Jesus, come quickly. And yet Jesus should come quickly, even the greatest moment this life has to offer. The birth of a child, we long for that, but Jesus, we long for you even more. Like, we want a pure heart. Why? Because we want to see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. So this makes sense, right? 
Like, like if, if we've experienced being broken and being poor in spirit and spiritually bankrupt and now we've been comforted and we've been given mercy, we're going to inherit the earth, we're going to be satisfied, like all of these things that, that God's saying, wouldn't we want to tell other people about it? Like we'll tell other people about food. Like we would go to some restaurant, man, we'll talk about that restaurant for weeks. Man, they had the best shrimp and grits. Like what a, what a lot, man, I talk about shrimp and grits at Owens like it's like the only thing on earth sometimes. Like, like how foolish. Like I can talk about some restaurant that sells seafood, but I can't talk about the savior of the, of the universe who, can, who, who, would, who you can be at peace with. Like you can be at peace with the creator God of this universe and I don't want to tell you about it. Like, like you just walk through this. Like how would we not want to tell other people this? But I think there's also another level to peacemaking. Right, because there's this idea of peacemaking between God and men and these men don't know Jesus and we want them to know God, we want them to be at peace with God, but I think there's a whole nother level. Romans 12, Paul would say, as much as it lives, as much as it is possible within you, live peaceably with all men. Right? In the church, outside the church, live peaceably with all men. Okay, citizens of the kingdom, right? That's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being a citizen of the kingdom. And, and what does that look like? It looks like somebody who's at peace with other people. Right? If, if we came in here on Sunday morning and this person doesn't like this person, this person has a grudge against that person, and this person really hates that person, and this person has to talk to that person in 20 years. And we're like, hey, guess what? We're trying to make peace in our community with God and man, but yet there's no peace in this room. I don't think that's what God's talking about. Like, I don't, I don't think that's the picture Jesus is after. I think he's saying, like, we're going to live peaceably with all men. Yes, we're going to make peace with men and God and restore a relationship there, but we're going to be at peace with people in this room. And what does he say about that? He says, those that would make peace, you shall be called sons of God. This is not some way to earn your salvation or to earn to be a child of God. I think this is what he's saying is that people will recognize that you're different. Like, like you're striving for peace? Even amongst the people in this room, someone from the outside walks in and says, hey, this group of people is different. That group of people over there, yeah, they, they look like everybody else. So this group of people, they look different. They must be who they say they are. They must be children of God. Right? That's what we should want. Right? That's what we should long for. What does it take? It takes us doing the effort of making peace with others. This last one, I say last one because uh, it's, it's all dealing with persecution, and so we're just going to lump these together. Verse 10, though. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Like, this isn't being persecuted because you're annoying. Right? This isn't being persecuted because you dress up like Jar Jar Binks, the last Star Wars movie. Like, there's some things that maybe are worth, no, just kidding, I won't say that. Um, but like, this is being persecuted for what? For the sake of righteousness. What is that sake of righteousness? I think what Jesus is saying is everything we just talked about in the Beatitudes. You live out this Beatitude life, guess what? You will be persecuted. And in the midst of that persecution, there's blessing. Right? If we're, we have a quote that we're going to end with. And, and he's going to probably say it better than I am. But if you think about it, who's the, the epitome? Like, what is the best example of somebody who lived out the Beatitudes in the entire history of the world? It's Jesus Christ. What did they do with him? They nailed him on a cross. Right? So there's this picture, like, if I live out the Beatitudes, everyone's going to love me. And yet Jesus is saying, no, if you live out the Beatitudes, everyone's going to persecute you. And he says, but you're blessed for that. Why? Because he's going he's to end, in essence, with how he started. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, it begins with the kingdom and it ends with the kingdom. Like, like you have, have eternity and heaven as your home. Like, it doesn't matter what type of persecution they do to you now. They cannot steal that from you. They, they, can, they can kill you, and they still can't, they can't steal your citizenship from a better kingdom, from a far greater kingdom. So Jesus says, blessed are you who have been persecuted. He, verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Again, not, not for your own stupidity, but because of your life for Jesus. And he says what? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Why can we rejoice? What is this blessing? And end of verse 12, your reward in heaven is great. Like it's worth it now. Romans 8, I can put up with, with the trials of this world because there's a far greater uh, weight of glory that will be revealed in me. Right? I can put up with persecution now because right? for all eternity it's going to be worth it. And so Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to be a citizen. You want to be a citizen of this kingdom? This is what it's going to look like. It's, it's not that we would do these things so that we become a citizen. It's that if you are a citizen of this kingdom, this is how your life should look. We'll end with this quote from Daniel Aiken uh, once more. Why are the Beatitudes such a beloved portion of the Bible for a Christian? I think I have an idea. We love them because they give us a portrait of Jesus. And not just a portrait of Jesus, but also who we are becoming in him. Right? Like, so this is, we're not perfect in any of these things, but we should be growing in all these things. So what does he say? He says, no one sympathized with spiritual beggars more than Jesus. No one grieved over sin in a broken world more than Jesus. No one was more meek in submitting to God's will than Jesus. No one hungered and thirsted for righteousness more than Jesus. No one showed mercy to others more than Jesus. No one sought peace between God and man and between man and man more than Jesus. No one suffered unjust persecution and evil against themselves more than Jesus. I look at the Beatitudes and I see Jesus. I look at the Beatitudes and I see who I am becoming in him. Blessed, delight happy. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this sermon on the Mount. Jesus, I thank you that you have shared with us through your word what it looks like to be a citizen of your kingdom. God, this isn't just what it looks like to be a citizen. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of the one who would put on flesh and come and die for us in our place. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us to look more and more like Jesus. Help us to be more and more merciful. Help us to be more and more broken and mourning over our sin. Help us to hunger and thirst for you like never before. God, help us to be prepared for persecution, knowing that persecution brings a great reward in heaven. God, if we're citizens, if we're, if we're your children, we should long to look more and more like you, and you have showed us what that looks like here in the Beatitudes. So God, help us to grow. Spirit, convict. Spirit, point out places in our life where we are not broken over sin. Point out areas of our life where we are not mourning over our sin. Point out areas of our life where we are not merciful to other people. Point out areas where you're not being peacemakers with other people. In our heart, we want to look like Jesus, but our flesh is so weak. So God, I pray you give us grace. Give us help. I pray that we wouldn't do this individually, uh, but we would do it corporately as a church, that we'd be helping one another grow in Christ-likeness, grow in these Beatitudes. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.